I'm going to jump right in and talk about Philippians. So Philippians is a book written by the Apostle Paul. And it's, it's uh, Paul was in prison at this time. And we're not really sure if he was in prison in Rome or, or in Ephesus or the two places that most people consider good possibilities. It's not real clear where he was. But Philippi, you'll see on the map, if you, if you look in the top middle, this is a Google, Google Earth map, there's a little red dot, and that's Philippi. And Philippi is northeast of Greece and northwest of Istanbul. So if you go all the way to the right, just a little bit off the map, that would be where Istanbul is today. And Google Earth is spectacular because you can go anywhere in the world and just roam the streets. And so I went to modern-day Philippi this week and just took a look around. And Philippi is, what, what remains of Philippi is just kind of a little village. There's, there's not a lot to it. There's actually one road that runs through it that Google Earth will allow you to drop a button on. And this is the kind of sites you see. You see it's a hilly, a hilly space with quaint little homes and quaint little walls and quaint little cafes where people sit outside and eat. So this is the one road that meanders through. It reminds me of of Carmi, Illinois, a little, little town in southern Illinois a little bit, um, only more Greek-looking. And men like to sit outside and smoke and gather and stare at a scooter across the way, apparently. Uh, but also, real, really close nearby are the ruins of ancient Philippi. And so this is an ancient basilica from Philippi. And these were, these were the places that, that Paul's church frequented. Um, it, was, it was the first missionary journey that he took into Eastern Europe, and it was the first church planted in Eastern Europe. And, and now, now what's going on is he's been imprisoned, and a couple things have happened that have recalled his memory back to Philippi. So if you read in Acts chapter 16, you'll see that Paul hung out in Philippi and got to know a lot of the people there. But now, much, much later, he's, he's imprisoned, and he's thinking about them. And the, the people in Philippi, the church in Philippi, sent a guy named Epaphroditus to visit Paul in prison, and they brought him gifts. And there's, there's no... There's no real clear description of what these gifts were, except that it was kind of ministerial support. He needed money while he was in prison. He needed food and goods, and, and Epaphroditus traveled all the way there, whether it was, whether it was Ephesus or Rome. It was a pretty good, pretty good trek from, from Philippi and visited him, and he was thankful for that. And so he writes this letter to the people of Philippi. It's a little bit like this letter I got from my friends Ryan and Kathleen Brooks recently. The Brooks, the Brooks are ministry or missionaries to the University of Illinois that are getting ready to start get started and this is what's called a support letter that missionaries send out and it's whether you're supporting them already which we do as a church or whether you're considering supporting them often missionaries will send a letter saying hey thanks for the goods and here's some information about what's going on and here's some information about what we're doing and that's that's a little bit what what the book of Philippians is is a kind of a missionary support letter of Paul saying hey thanks for the support but it's also instructional because Philippi at that time as you see from this picture from the, um, oh, I don't remember the, the Bible story, the Bible something online, I can't remember right now, but uh, they, they described it as a Roman colony known for patriotic nationalism. And so Philippi was a place where Roman soldiers retired, and this church had been established there, and the Roman soldiers were quite patriotic and nationalistic concerning Rome, and, and so they were finding a lot of, a lot of pushback to their religion. And th in those days, the Jewish people weren't too hip to the Christians because the Christians were kind of revamping and reshaping everything Judaism always was and introducing Jesus as the Messiah. And so, so in some sense, the Christ, early Christians received a lot of persecution from the Jews. But then secondly, they received a lot of, of persecution from the Romans. And the Romans actually considered early Christians to be atheists because they only worshipped one God, they wouldn't go to the temples of the gods, and they had no graven images, they had no statues. And so a lot of the Christians were accused of being atheists. And the church at Philippi was was under persecution, and so as you see in the picture, they're saying Jesus is king, and, and the Romans are saying Caesar is king, and they're 
you're being persecuted. So Paul's writing and saying, thanks, thank you, and. He's saying, thanks for the support, and let's talk about the persecution you're going through. Let's talk about the right way to respond when, when government is corrupted or when government persecutes. It's been said that, it's even been postulated that the, the book of Philippians was not actually one letter, but was an amalgamation of several different communications that, that Paul had with, with others. And I, I haven't studied that too much, so I can't speak intelligently of it, except to say that the book does appear as like a, a series of vignettes with a kind of a central theme. So there's all these different ideas that when they kind of are plugged together, they, they come up with one big idea, and that theme is this, is that your life, your story is a lived expression of Jesus' story. So he's, he's telling the Philippian people that when they live, they're an extension of the story of Jesus, and that that story is a story of letting go, not grasping, as we'll see. And so Christianity has historically been about letting go of power. You'll find the Greek word kenosis in Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus laid down his godhood to become a man. It's kind of a laying down or a letting go, and that's, that's kind of the central theme. But because it's a series of vignettes, this, this sermon series for over the next eight weeks is going to, be, it's going to seem like a bunch of mini-sermons, and, and I'm okay with that because that's kind of how it's presented. But let's, let's dive right into chapter 1 and just read. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my letters for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so what we're going to do is each, each week we're going to tackle a, passage of the, a part of this passage and then kind of summarize the ideas and then a thought that is relevant to us. And so, so here's, here's the first thought as you read this, this letter from Paul to his friends is that Paul's tired of being quarantined, and I think we can all relate to this. He's, he's, he's missing his friends being imprisoned. He's, he's been separated from the people he cares about and separated from missions and ministry that he considers important. And you see it, you see it in his words that he, his heart kind of aches to be with his friends. And in one part of the passage, he says to them, I thank my God every time I remember you. So you imagine this man in a Roman prison. Roman prison wouldn't be like an American prison. It would be quite, I, I suspect, far more difficult. But isolated and alone, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray for joy. He also says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And then he goes even further to say, God can testify how I long for you all. He says, with the affection of Christ Jesus, which is a fun a fun to think, to think about that Jesus Christ is affectionate and, and caring. But he's calling out to his friends. He's, he's been quarantined, he's been separated and isolated, and he's taking time to write a letter to let them know that he misses them, that he cares about them, that he's thinking about them, that he carries them in his heart. And so the takeaway for me is to let the love. We, we as a culture and we as believers have, have so many walls that we've put up about concerning affection and, and care and reaching out to our friends and Sometimes we think, I don't want to bother you. I, I, I know I've, I've heard this a lot recently 
with the loss of our father-in-law that, that people who have, have checked in have said, I didn't want to check in because I wasn't sure if you'd want me to check in. And there's like this, this question of, of whether I should or whether I shouldn't. And, and so many of us have been hurt so many times that we, we've lost the, the gift of vulnerability and transparency and connection with people. And Paul, Paul in this passage is saying, I'm hurting and I miss my friends. And I have this text thread that goes on forever. Every now and then my wife, who, who goes through my texts and deletes the unnecessary stuff, deletes it. But other than that, it, it, it's scrolled on for years. And it's between several friends of mine. And as you can see in the picture, uh, Scott Pitt is one of those friends. And we're talking about, I, I texted him telling him I had a lousy day, but I sous vide some steak and it turned out good. And a lot of time, a lot of our conversations start with meat. We, we talk about this meat we're smoking or the football game that's on. And a couple of these guys, three of these guys were, were tremendous athletes for a long time. And big dudes, burly guys, and, and uh, but we communicate and joke, and we're sarcastic with each other, and we pick on each other, and, and jab each other, and, and, and every now and then we'll say, man, I just really appreciate you guys, thanks for being there, or something kind like that, but, but imagine writing into this text thread something like this, it's right for me to feel about you guys this way, because I carry you in my heart, or even more intensely, how I long for you guys with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, we live, we live in a very strange world when it comes to affection, but probably that would be taken as odd. We, we, we live in a culture where, where exhibiting and speaking true affection towards our friends and true affection towards the people we love is, especially in America, we're so isolated and so independent, we're kind of like, whoa, 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 hold on there, pal. And, and then, you, then you couple that with the fact that everything is overtly sexualized in this world, and all of a sudden just reaching out to your friends becomes something, something kind of odd. And I think the takeaway from Paul would be let the affection go. Let the love show. If, if you love somebody, tell them. If you love somebody, show them that you appreciate them. Show them how much they mean to you. There's, as I drive through my neighborhood, Houston Acres here in Louisville, there's this one woman who's always out walking her dog. And she's probably in her late 60s, early 70s. And, and she, she tends to walk like this, with her, with her eyes down on the road. And, and uh, I've just made it my goal in, my li- in life to make her wave back at me. Because every time she looks up, I wave and I try, I try to smile. I'm trying not to do like a creeper look and wave, but just more like a friendly look and wave. And every time she looks at me and just goes like this and keeps on walking. And it's one of my life goals to get her to wave at me. And actually, it has been one of my life goals because just a while back she went like this. And that was the best I could get out of her. But so many of us are like that woman, and I'm not speaking into her situation and why she doesn't respond favorably uh, easily. There's no telling what's going on in her life, but so many of us are like, like her that we're just, we're just not almost capable of exhibiting love and exhibiting connection and exhibiting friendliness. And I think, I think Paul's example here in the book of Philippians shows that we ought to let, let love go. And part of it is we're scared to get, be hurt. That's, that's, that's a huge part of this situation is that we're scared that our love won't be reciprocated. And the way of the cross says, show the love reciprocated or not. That's the, that's the way of Jesus is that you, you risk the pain, you risk the hurt of loving and loving well, even if you are not loved in return. And so I think one of the little vignettes of this sermon is to let love flow, let it, let it go, let it, let it out. The second little vignette in this passage is that God does it and you don't. We, we are fiercely independent as Western Christians. We are fiercely independent as Americans as, and, and as a culture. And so we, we think that we can pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and make our life great somehow. 
And I think something Paul says in this passage shows that that's not, that's not the way of the cross. It's not the way of Jesus is that we strive and work and try to be good or be great or to make a difference or, or to be the human beings that we're supposed to be, but rather it's something that God does. He says this. He says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's clearly talking about God doing the work in you. And it says that he started the work of your life. He started the breath of your life. From the very beginning, the breath of God was what gave you breath, and it was him that fed into you. As, as a follower of Jesus, it was, it was the Holy Spirit that drew you and brought you in and, and, and taught you the way. And, and it says, so it says, God started this. God will complete it. It didn't say, you started this. You were really religious. You were really holy. You were really righteous. You were really hungry for God. And, and therefore, you are where you are now or anything of the sort. Or, and it certainly doesn't say, if you'll just keep going, if you'll keep working, if you'll keep striving, if you'll keep trying, you're going to be okay with God. It's, it doesn't say that either. It says, he started it. He will finish it. And it has a lot to do with our trust. I, I saw this quote from my friend Cindy Burfield. She, she quoted what's called the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And then she said this in a commentary. She said, emotions rage when we are grasping for control. Serenity reigns when we realize control was never meant to be in our hands. A lot of us feel like the world is spinning out of control, whether it's the coronavirus or the storming of the capital or race issues or issues of sexuality or, or the weather or, or whatever it is that causes you turmoil. And, as human beings, we have this, this innate, natural desire to, to get a grip on everything, to, to figure it out, to think it through, to arrive at the right answers, to be correct. And, and there's nothing wrong with seeking truth, for, for sure, and please don't mishear me on that. But, but when we start to think that the world will come in line once I get the right idea or once, once I do the right thing, we're, we're kind of missing, missing out on reality. The reality is that there's a lot of stuff that's out of our control. And so... We have to find a, a, a centered place that we can live out of that says, even when things are out of control, life is okay. God is good. God is near. God is close. Politics enters into this conversation a lot. We, we think that if the right candidate were in office or if the right laws were enacted, then the world would have the order that we desire. My friend Greg Brodsky, who's one of the elders at Daylight Church, posted this recently. He said, putting too much stock in a person or party will leave you disappointed and empty. Don't take it from me, the psalmist said it first. And then he quotes this psalm, chapter 146. Psalm 146 says, Don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help for you there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth, and all their plans die with them. But joyful are those who have God as their helper. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry, frees the prisoners, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are weighed down. This isn't at all to say that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics, uh, that the conversation of the intersection between Christians and politics is a super interesting one that I'm not going to get into today. It's also not to say that you shouldn't vote or that you shouldn't have a favorite candidate, but the minute you start to think that if Donald Trump stays in office or Joe Biden takes the office and one, one of those men or one of those parties or one of those political systems becomes your salvation, you've missed out on something very, very valuable in that all that is going to fade. You, you look at all the ancient empires of all time and they come and they go. That's not where the solution is. That's not where the answer is. And again, I'm not saying not to be involved. I'm just saying don't let it 
encapsulate your heart, encapsulate your thinking. I think Paul would say, think differently about it. And so the takeaway for this is to watch those shoulders. And here's what I mean by this. When I was preparing this sermon and got to this portion and was talking about control, I realized that even, even as I type, even as I work my mouse, my shoulders are tense because that, I, I find that unless, unless somebody says, watch your shoulders, I, I find that I, I tense up a lot. I'm always physically grasping, physically gripping. I, I saw a post on Facebook recently that said something about, check out your dry chapped lips, but don't lick them now. And as soon as I saw it, it made me realize that, hey, my lips are a little chapped and a little parched, and we're all pretty thirsty all the time. But sometimes it, it takes pointing out that you're tense, that you're tensing up, or it takes pointing out that your lips are chapped to see that there needs to be a solution. And I just want to encourage you that I think Paul would say, God started this thing. God's going to finish this thing. Everything's okay. Let those shoulders fall. Let your chest breathe. It's going to be okay. And here's what we do as Christians. We say, okay, so, so now how do, I, how do I get a hold of letting go? The, 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 the preacher said that I'm supposed to relax, so now I must relax. I have, I have, I have to work hard to not work hard. And it's, it's, even, even this is something that if you strive for it, if you're thinking, I've got to let go, I've got to be better at rest, I've got to be better at relaxing, you're never going to be better at rest and relaxation. It, it involves a kind of literal letting go, which is the theme of our entire book of Philippians, is letting go. And I, and I don't have the answers for how exactly that works, except to say that it's a spiritual thing. It's a, it's a God thing that God does, and it involves some kind, of, some kind of spiritual invitation of saying, God, I want you to do this thing in me. I, I, I'm, I'm incapable of not striving. Help me. And I believe God will. We used to memorize passages of Scripture in college quite a bit and still, still do believe that the Scriptures are quite important and it's good to have it in your brain. But I had this buddy named Stephen Glasgow who was memorizing, I believe it was Galatians 3.3 3, that I'll show you in just a minute. And he would memorize it by walking around to people and saying, are you so foolish? Just over and over, he, was, he, he would walk up to a stranger and say, are you so foolish? And, which is kind of silly in my perspective now, but at the time it was really cool. And, but to all of us, he would say, are you foolish? Are you so foolish? Are you so foolish? Because that's how the passage Galatians 3, 3 says. And so it was his catalyst for remembering the rest of the verse. He would say, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And Christianity has been historically and, and will be forever a spiritual faith. It's, it's something that God does in us. And we, can't, we, we can never muscle up enough to be good Christians. We can never muscle up enough to love our neighbor as ourselves. We can never muscle up enough to pray love of God over our enemies or to, to serve others with altruism. Altruism is an impossibility for those trying to be altruistic. It's, it's a spiritual work that God does. The next vignette goes to the Princess Bride. It's a take of a quote from Princess Bride, and it's winning. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. When you read the book of Philippians, it says, Paul says this, he says, whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. A lot of times when we look at our lives, we, we have these markers in our, in our brains as to, to what real faith looks like or real living or real life looks like. And it, it, it might be that we have enough money in the bank. It might be that we have good food in our bellies. It might be that our kids are in private schools. It might be that I, some, I or someone else preached to, to massive crowds. It could be that we started a nonprofit and did great things. We have all these markers and and what we find in Scripture is that the marker of success, the marker of what winning actually is, I think Paul hits on here, 
Because as a, as a preacher, I can relate to Paul. and Actually, I can't relate to Paul, but I can relate to what he's relating about. When he says whether I'm in chains or confirming and defending the gospel, he's talking about whether I'm actually out there in ministry, speaking, preaching, touching lives, making a difference, or whether I'm isolated at home, quarantined, and, and held back. And he says, either way, I've got the grace of God with me. And, and I, can, I can relate that as a preacher, the larger the crowd, the more effective you feel like you're being. The bigger the church grows, the, the better you think the church is doing. The, the more opportunities you get to talk to people about Jesus or to, to serve openly, not, not necessarily openly, to serve often, uh, you, you feel like you're winning at life. And, and, and Paul is saying here that that's your, you keep using the word winning, but it, maybe it means something different than what you think it means. And I, I saw this quote from, from Amy Moss. Amy Moss is the daughter of the kind of original Christian rocker Glenn Kaiser. And she was talking about this time of her life. She says, I find myself really struggling with feelings of sadness, anxiety, and overall exhaustion. She says, it's so heavy and overwhelming, but I must ask, what well am I drinking from? From what source am I seeking fulfillment and renewal? And then she goes on to talk about a devotional that she had been reading and, and where, where our source of fulfillment should come from. Like, like, what does it really mean to win at life? And she kind of touches on it here. She says, may the joy of the Lord be our strength. And as we seek him, may we find him, for in him alone rests our hope and our glory. It doesn't... Success is not measured by all the normal earmarks that we think success should be measured by, but rather it's, it's, it's God. It's, it's not even connecting with God correctly or understanding God correctly. It, it, it is God. It's a, it's a letting go of all those things of, of thinking these are the earmarks of when I will be a success. These are the earmarks of when my religion will be what it ought to be. And it, it kind of lets go of all the oughts completely and just says, God, God, God. And so the takeaway for me here has to do with the glorious pipes of Ellis Boyd Redding, which I'll explain in just a moment. Some of you will and some of you won't know who Ellis Boyd Redding is, but in a moment it will be clear. I was, I was listening to some worship music. It's common for me to start a morning by just turning on some worship music and pacing in my office for a little while. And I noticed the first song that came on was like this arena rock song. And, and, and as Christians, for a long time, we've... Oftentimes you'll, you'll hear people say, that's where God moved, or God was really there, or you'll hear the word anointing or anointed, that the worship was anointed. And, and, and some, somehow there's this correlation between crowds and the movement of God, that, and which, which God does move in crowds, don't misunderstand, but it's, it's to say when music is big or moving or touching or like, like excellent, that that's, that's when God shows up. And, and I, I think we need to buck against that a little bit, that, that that's not winning or Christianity, it's a, it can be a part of winning and success, but it's not, big, bigness in arena rock is not the way to go. Um, I, I'd like you to Google, after we get done here, these words, a man playing guitar is joined by two strangers. It's a, it's a video on YouTube right now where um, this guy is a white guy, he's beating on his guitar, he's sitting out in front of a convenience store and, and has just this smooth, really beautiful voice, and he's singing a song, and, and this black dude walks up and Leans, they're strangers from what, what it appears, and he, he leans against the wall across from him and just listens for a while, and then he starts singing. He starts singing with, with the guy. It's like this soulish gospel, I want to say growlish, but not. It's not, but it's, it's this different vibe, different thing going on, but it, it melds so beautifully, and it just starts to, 
get, get a little bit bigger and a little bit more beautiful. And then this other, this other guy comes, comes walking down the street towards him, and you can, you can see him moving as, he, as he's moving towards the musicians, and he's, he's feeling it already, and, and, and he's, he's, he starts rapping. So, the, so the, the first guy's playing the guitar, beating on the guitar, singing. The second guy's singing like gospel soul style music, and then this third guy starts rapping. And it's just, a, it's just amazing what happens. It's, and, you know, it's a goosebumps, hair on your arms raising moment. And people come out of the convenience store and walk between them and are smiling. And you can see every face that comes by is, is elevated a little bit by this moment. And then at the end, the third guy who walked up said, says something like, thanks, guys, I needed that, and goes in to buy his groceries. And the, the song is over. It's done. And it's this beautiful moment. And it, it, felt, it feels like the kingdom of God. It feels, like, it feels godly to me. And it's, it's small. It's this small thing that not very many people knew about until it became viral. And it was just this moment where three human beings came together. And, and I want to I call it worshipped. Worshipped in, in the fact that they were loving each other, that they were expressing their creativity, that the, that the arts were, 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 were shown and, and, and made large. And it was just this beautiful thing. And, and I, think, I think creating beauty is a, is a form of worship. So it's not arena rock. It's not everything is going, everything is grand, everything is big. It was, it was smaller than that, and it felt, it felt kingdom of God to me. And the reason I brought up Mr. Redding is that Redding, Mr. Redding, what was his name? Ellis Boyd Redding, need my glasses to find it. Ellis Boyd Redding is Red from Shawshank Redemption. And in Shawshank Redemption, Red and, and, and Andy Dufresne were, were having a conversation in the, in the courtyard of the prison, and Andy had bought Red a harmonica. And they had this conversation about hope because Red says, there's no reason for me to play the harmonica because there's no hope in this place. And they have this little dialogue about the meaning of hope and whether hope is real. And later on that night, you see Red in his cell, closed off. There's a storm starting outside. It's a dark and gloomy night. And he picks up his harmonica and he blows a single note on the harmonica before he looks at it and puts it down. And I don't, I don't know exactly what the artists were intending, but for me, that was always Red. That was read saying, maybe there's a little bit of hope. Maybe there's just, just a tad reason to, to appreciate the arts, to appreciate beauty and life, even in this damp, dank, nasty, storm-surrounded place. There's a note of music. And I think about the early Christians and how they gathered around, and they didn't have arena rock. How many anthems did they need? They, did, they, didn't, they didn't have... 48,000 videos that they could watch in a moment's notice with good preaching and good theology and exegetical Bible studies. And they didn't have, they didn't have wonderful video illustrations and, and live sermons that they could log into on Sunday mornings. And all, all they had was a gathering of people who had each other in their hearts and who cared for one another that would gather together. And as, as it said in the early, first, or early second century, it says they would sing unto Christ as if unto a God. Pliny the Younger wrote that, I believe. They didn't have the, the big stuff, the markers of success that we have today. They, they, they wouldn't have had the kind of financial success that we strive for. They wouldn't have had the cars and the houses and the vacations. And, but they had one another, and they had a God that they loved. I was in Jamaica on a mission trip years ago, and this, this shack kind of looks like the church that we went to, except it had more roof and less walls. Uh, they were concrete walls, but it was, it was dilapidated like this, and we all gathered inside, and our, our missions team was maybe eight or ten people. I don't remember exactly. And then maybe there were eight or ten people in the church. And I remember there was a, a single, probably 40-watt light bulb up in the ceiling. And the music team consisted of a guy with a, a 
a drum, and I don't remember what the drums were called, a box drum where you sit on it and you, you beat on it like this, and they were singing, I feel good, 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 I feel good, wonderful good, every time I talk about Jesus, I feel good, 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 I feel good, 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 and they, and, and, and they, they got into it and started dancing, and, and I, I remember thinking, what is there to feel so good about? I mean, the, the bathroom in the back of the didn't have a sink. It was just a hole in the floor and a, a, a little water hose sticking out so that you could spray it down when you were done. And, and I was telling a friend about that memory just recently, and, and this friend said, we sang that song for hours, for an hour. And we did. We, we, we entered this church, and they started playing that song, and they beat on that drum, and they danced around, and they did it for, for well over an hour to the point where this American dude was like, Oh, man, come on. So, so we get it. You feel good. Okay, we feel good. But they felt good. There was something beyond all the earmarks of success. They had gotten a hold of what Amy Moss was talking about earlier. She said, in him alone rests our hope and glory. They had gotten a hold of something that us rich Americans were having a hard time getting a hold of. And Paul concludes with this one thought. And I'm going to go ahead and jump from the thought to the takeaway. That in all you're getting, getting lo- get love. We'll go back to to the the ancient wisdom text of Scripture called Proverbs. And in Proverbs, the writer says this. He says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. It means of everything that you strive for in life and everything that you desire, understanding is the key. Understanding and wisdom is is the thing that you ought to want most. But it's it's super interesting that, that Paul dives into this a little deeper when he prays for his friends, the Philippians, he says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may, be able to, you may be able to discern what is best. So he, he says that love abounding is part of or, or maybe the whole of unlocking this key that, that Solomon wrote centuries earlier saying, saying this was the big thing. This was the most important thing, is that you'd have knowledge and depth of insight. And Paul says that somehow abounding in love is the answer. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, If I speak in tongues, I fathom all mysteries and knowledge, but I do not have love, I am nothing. So, even in desiring knowledge, even in desiring to know what is right, to think what is true, we we strive and work and grasp at being right. Even in doing that, it says the, the, the key to unlocking that door of being right is to unlock the door of love. And love, as we read in 1 Corinthians 13, is selfless action. It's, self, it's selfless giving. Of one, it's giving up of oneself. It's putting the other first. It's patience and kindness, compassion, that those are the keys to being right. And so often we strive to be right and we forget to strive to be loving. I saw this quote this week. It says, we spend so, so, so much time trying to figure out if we're right. Are we on the right side of the aisle? Is our theology accurate? We ask, am I right with God? How do I know that what I think I know about God is correct? We lose sight of the fact that our neighbors are suffering, that the person I go to church with is lonely, that many people have never even heard that God is on their side. And I think Paul would tell us, the author of Philippians, I think he would tell us, Striving for truth is absolutely important, but if, if you arrive at truth that doesn't include altruistic, self-sacrificing love, you probably have not arrived at the truth. 
if you think you've arrived at the truth. Love is the key to unlocking the door of truth. And love without action is not love. Love that doesn't do stuff is sentimentality. It's something else. Love does, as Bob Goff would say. Now, I want to brag on a friend right now. I'm going to pull up a, a quote from him. Ryan Engler is a good buddy of mine. We've been buddies since we went to Lutheran youth camp as elementary and middle school kids together, and we're still doing ministry together and good friends. And I, I, can, say, I can say, as Paul would, that I have a great affection for this man. He's, he's, a, he's a stellar human being, and I love him very much. But this last Saturday, he was a part of the skeleton crew that we took out to, to feed our downtown friends with our food truck. And while we were down there, we found a man who was just sitting on a, like a sheet on the, on the sidewalk, and he had socks over his hands because it was cold. It was in the upper 20s, lower 30s at this time. And, and he, he was sitting on a sheet with a blanket over, like an Afghan blanket that was, not, it was very thin, and, and uh, that was his life. That was, that was where he lives right now. And, and we also discovered what they're calling Tent City, which is an area where people without homes congregate. And we, we, we ran into one man who sent us in that direction, and you have to go under an underpass and down a, 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 a quite gravelly and potholed road to get there. But there's maybe a hundred tents where, where who knows how many, how many people live and, and try to survive. And it's cold and, and harsh. And so we fed, we, we fed macaroni and cheese with bacon, big containers of it. It was great, and, and, and people loved it, and it was, it was quite satisfying to, to serve. And again, that gets into the questions of is it altruism if you do it for the satisfaction, and we don't go into that today. But, but I got this text from him later, and it's not virtue signaling if you're bragging on someone else. But he said, thanks. I went back and gave that man a tent, sleeping bag, socks, hand warmers, hunting thermals, a Coleman stove, and two gas tanks. And then we had a conversation about it. He, he mentioned that he was sleeping with socks on his hands and a crocheted blanket over him. And I don't know about Ryan Engler's theology. I, you know, we, we talk about it. We talk about theology fairly often. I don't, but I don't know if he's 100% accurate. I don't know about his politics. We, we don't tend to talk politics too much. I don't know if he's right on, spot on about his politics. I, I, I don't know when it comes to his entire life how many areas that he's correct, but I do know he's getting something right. And I do know that all of us, no matter where we're at in the political spectrum, no matter where we're at on theology, all of us, I believe God has planted it in us to recognize there's something right about that. That is good. That is right. That is correct. And I think Paul would agree. He would say, let love abound. And in let loving abound, you've already arrived at understanding. You've already arrived at knowledge. You've already arrived at wisdom. I'll close with this song by the worship leader, Eric Siemens, called Till Only You Remain. He says, I want to fade, fade away into nothing. I want to disappear like a glimmer in the sun until all that's left is what you have done. Not what I have done, what you have done, what you have done. He says, break me down and strip me bare. Blessed be your name. Purge me from all worldly cares till only you remain till only you remain, till only you remain. And when, when only God remains, that's going to look like love. That's going to change you and shape you to love.